suppose it's a bit like being drunk, where you're, you know, not absolutely plastered, but like a bit drunk. You sort of think things and then you're not sure. You almost don't trust yourself very much. And also, if you are hallucinating, which is reasonably common, that's another element of sort of distrust, where you kind of think, did I see someone there or was it an inflatable shark? Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. Today's guest is Damien Hall. Damien is a record-breaking ultramarathoner and author. He represented GB aged 40 and continues to record competitive results in the world's toughest races. This conversation was recorded not long after he took the win at the Spine Race, which is certainly up there when it comes to tough races. It traces the Pennine Way and this year runners were faced with freezing conditions. In this conversation, we talk through that experience, hallucinations ultra runners grow accustomed to, as well as touching on some of the subjects Damien has uncovered in his most recent book, We Can't Run Away From This. The book explores how we can improve running's footprint in our climate emergency. Let's get into the interview. Damien, thank you so much for joining me on the on the Big Run podcast. I, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I've been wanting to, to to have you on as a guest for for a long time, and I'm I'm really excited to have you post post spine race. So, well, how long has it been now? It's been what two two weeks now since since you finished. How how long has it been, and how how are you feeling? How's the body? Yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, it's just over two weeks. I finished two weeks ago yesterday. Uh, feels already like a um, like a long time ago. Um, really good, to be honest. So that, um, I've done, that's the fourth time I've started the spine race. And the second time I did it um, in 2015, yeah, it was like seven weeks before I could run again um, due to sort of tendon damage. So I'm already running again, so I'm very happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not. Um, my heart rate is still a little bit higher than the normal, but it's it's on a clear trajectory of coming down. So I'm really thrilled about that because after my long, my previous big long race in the autumn at the Tour de Gion, it it actually took nearly a couple of months for my heart rate to come back down to normal. Um, so again, yeah, um, physically, I've got I've got physio later. I'll get a, my first massage. I got a very slight tendon niggle in my foot, but again, it's improving. So yeah, overall, really thrilled with recovery. Um, um, thank you. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, it's curious to see in comparison to when you've when you've raced it before. The maybe what's changed in terms of maybe your training and approach that's meant that this time you've been you've been able to get back out running and you haven't had to take such a a long kind of uh, recovery process. What what were the th- kind of things that you you implemented this time around? And we'll get into the race and obviously an incredible race. You won the thing. But uh, just curious, just going off your response there, what were the things that you kind of implemented that sort of led to you feeling a lot kind of fresher than expected? Yeah, there's a, there's a few things. Um, I mean, one would be that the back in 2015, I was only a couple of years, two or three years into the sport, really. So, um I suppose I didn't have that. Um, well, it would be probably more muscular, more more musculoskeletal. I didn't really have that sort of foundation um, uh, there. Um, certainly that year as well was a particularly muddy year. And a lot of people got a similar injury, actually, which was from literally us pulling our feet out of the mud constantly, that sort of really sticky mud 
and and some of the medics were explaining that nearly everyone was getting this this um pain down the down the shins um and it was yeah so unique to conditions on that particular race in a way but also i was newer to the sport um and also at that, that time I, I think in that autumn before that race i did have an, an injury so my training wasn't wasn't sort of as good as it could have been whereas now i'm, I'm pretty much sort of nearly six years without without a sort of over without a training injury um so i've got and i've got a lot more yeah i've got sort of 10 years in the sport now but also partly because of my age um 47 i do do a lot of strength work now um probably anywhere from an hour to sort of three hours a week um that could be a factor as well um and also things like i mean i i very rarely drink alcohol um uh, I, I really prioritise and value sleep. All those, all those really boring things that the magazines mm. tell you uh, might help do, do seem to help me it's, at my age anyway. So um, yeah, so there's quite a few factors. So it's difficult. You, you couldn't really probably put it on one thing, but there's probably two, three, four things. Yeah, that you're, you're absolutely right. And it's and it's and you, it's kind of the boring things as well that people kind of don't want to hear. That are the things that are, are often the most attributable to to improvement in performance of, of good sleep, maybe sort of pulling back on alcohol. And if you are getting, getting older, that implementing more strength work to kind of, to kind of fortify the body. And it's, it's clearly paid off for you an incredible result winning the race. So I think maybe a bit of context for people listening who might not be familiar with the spine race might be, might be helpful. So for people who perhaps haven't heard of this event, which is, the 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 wildest sounding race and it's so amazing that it's held over here in the uk so what what is the spine race what are the kind of what are the kind of stats on the race and yeah talk us through the the event this year and and how it all kind of played out for you it's a 10 year old event maybe maybe 11 years technically now um it goes follows the pennine way which is officially 268 miles um from edel in the peak district up to the up to just over the border into scotland um the race itself really is probably i'm just hurriedly looking at look looking at someone else's strava to see what they did oh he did yeah <laughs> looking at jack scott's but he did a few extra bits um the, the actual race itself is probably more like uh, somewhere between two six two six one or two miles and maybe two six five uh, I don't think it matters massively to, to many people, but but yeah, officially it's two six eight miles. It's probably a little bit tiny bit shorter than that, really. Um, and yeah, it, it follows the Pennine Way, which is our oldest national trail, and it is linked to the the Mass Trespass from nineteen thirty two. Which which if people haven't heard of, please please do look it up. It's a really important piece of um, civil disobedience that 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 people did to sort of challenge the laws at the time and get more access to the countryside so it's it's really connected to this amazing historical moment um of people power um you know against the ruling classes so so and and as you might guess yeah i've got i've got a bit of history of the pen on way I've, I've actually written a guidebook for it before i was even a runner i i hiked it so there's a lot of personal history there um it's quite oblique in in places trail it, there's lots of people peat bogs and, and moorlands and there are some really pretty sections but there's lots of bleak bits as well um you know there are it's not not everyone loves it and not every section of it is lovable um but mm. it's 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 a classic it's it's our oldest national trail our original national trail and yeah in, in 2012 um the first spine race happened and, and i remember i was only just getting into the sport and um i remember seeing i think an advert in a magazine or a news story 
saying there was going to be a winter race on it and i just thought it was absolutely crazy like i just thought that's not gonna that's not gonna work is it surely um and i watched it you know via sort of social media over a couple of years and then i just couldn't resist and then i j- jumped in um in 2014 um and just had yeah just this amazing adventure i suppose just having a it, i mean it feels surprisingly remote considering it's um going up the middle of england in between you know sheffield and leeds and manchester and um you know i guess further north it is genuinely remote but it's it's amazing how away from civilization you can feel and how how the wind can batter you and um it's um yeah it's just one hell of an adventure really and I, i've just i've loved it yeah started it four times finished it three times one hell of an adventure absolutely and uh, i i will come back to the um to the to the mass trespass thing that you mentioned because that feels really kind of relevant particularly with what's happening in, in dartmoor and the right to roam at the moment i think that'd mm-hmm. be lovely to kind of get into the weeds about that but just to go back to the race and you said you were looking at someone else's strava jack scott was that the individual who you were racing <laughs> during the course of this race how, how was how did that play out because i think when people hear about this race they think oh that's just an endurance event right you just kind of get through it maybe people who aren't as kind of within the scene contemplate racing a distance like that but are, are there racing elements within it are there tactics are do you have to go in with a mindset of of a competitor as well as someone who just wants to kind of survive and endure something like that i mean you don't have to at all um but i suppose what's happened to me over time is yeah the, the first year for me it was very much just about completing it um you know can i get to the end basically can i do that in in um you, you're allowed seven days um and and actually when you sort of put the statistics down on paper that is ample time and i I do know someone who's literally hiked it during the race didn't run a step and he had time to get there um so you can easily and i think quite a lot of people do see it as a completion thing you know can i get to the end they're not they're not too concerned whether they finished you know 25th or, or 45th um whether it took them an hour and you know 110 hours or 130 hours perhaps um but yeah, I did that first year, completed it, and I wanted I wanted to go back and be a bit more competitive. And I was I was third that next year, um, and then and then I suppose I had a break from it for a few years for various reasons. But then I came back last year with a lot more competitive mindset, p- partly because you know I'd 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 had um, had competitive results uh, in in the interim and. Um, and and yeah, I guess I was there to try and win, or or the, the apparently the better way to think of it is like you know I was there to try and get to the end as quickly as possible, you know, to give mm. my best performance. Um, but last year, what happened was um, I was go- it was going unbelievably well. I was I was four hours ahead of my nearest competitor, uh, a little over halfway in. Um, but I got this this sort of really uh, strong pain in my groin. Um, and yeah, I was really struggling to, there's a section of long, uh, big styles and I was just really struggling to just get over these styles. And I still had 24 hours ahead of me and I just couldn't imagine getting to the end without kind of just limping, limping for limping it in. And that would have been a lot more than 24 hours and, and I probably wouldn't have got a good result either. So it didn't seem worth it to me. Um, and I was worried about, yeah, lo- I suppose, long-term health, long-term injury, whether it was a hernia. Um, mm. and so I dropped out, I dropped out last year, um, which was you know, just super frustrating um, yeah. and that, but, but the fact I was leading the race, um, you know, showed I could be pretty competitive um, again. So I suppose this year, yeah, I, I was going in to, yeah, to try and try and get there as quickly as possible and, and, and hopefully get there first. Um, 
yeah, and thankfully, thankfully, that's what happened. Was it? Is it true that you nearly didn't win because of a, an alarm clock? Yeah, it's quite interesting. Now I wonder what would have happened. So, um, um, yeah, on the on the on the third night, I um, I realised I did need a decent sleep. A, a, a decent sleep on this race is, to my mind, anyway, is is an hour and a half or more, or, or a tiny bit more. So I did set my alarm for an hour and a half, but I didn't actually set my alarm. Um, I was very tired. It was about three in the morning, four in the morning. Um, and I remember creating the alarm in my watch, but not actually, I, did, I don't think I actually turned it on. So I actually slept, I think, another hour. But when I, I think that allowed my body a, a full sort of sleep cycle. And when I woke up, I actually felt, well, not, not exactly amazing because I'd just run about 220 miles. Um, but, but I felt refreshed and um, possibly a lot better than if I had woken up an hour earlier. Um, by then I'd slipped into second place. So I, I really had to chase down Jack ahead of me, who's, who's a lot younger than me, L- literally could be my son. Um, and, but I did, I had, I had that energy um, possibly because of oversleeping. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it's impossible to know what would have happened. I suppose if I'd woken up an hour early, he would have still been at the checkpoint and we could have, we would have left roughly together. Um, it could have, yeah, it would have been a slightly different type of race. I don't know what would have happened. Um, but yeah, that, that I overslept and, and who knows if that was, 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 you know, the crucial, the crucial moment. I mean, that morning was the, was the crucial part of the race in the end. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I do, um, next time, whether I'll set an alarm or not, or yeah, I just need to. <laughs> I love that the one time that you've sort of missed the the alarm that you know it may have been a, a factor in, in in the result but I mean the, the sleep itself that that so you set initially for an hour and a half you ended up having an extra hour so close to what two and a half hours that must have been the deepest sort of most intense sleep so how long are you how long had you been awake up to that point how long sort of roughly what kind of how much time on, on feet sort of had you had up to that point and how much actual sleep had you had up to that point before the final day? Most people, or at least most people who are, who are trying to be competitive there run through the first night. Um, and that's not too much trouble if you've done that, if you've done that once, once before. And I've done that a few times now. It, it, it's, it's fairly familiar, familiar for me. Um, uh, and also the checkpoints, there aren't actually that many checkpoints uh, to where you can sleep. Um, and there isn't on that first night, um, there isn't really a good option anyway. So most, yeah. So if you're trying to be competitive, really, you don't sleep till the second night, um, at Middleton and Teesdale, which is just over halfway. So I did, I did try and sleep there and I was hoping to do, you know, an hour and a half ish. Um, but actually I just didn't sleep very well. Um, I had some leg pain and, and there was a bit of noise. Um, but I did sort of nod off and I think that effect that sort of gave me a power nap and I was sort of awake and it's kind of like, you know, do you, sl- do you lie there for another hour trying to sleep, um, which might not be successful, or do you sort of get up and get going? And, and I don't know, I, I, I don't really know what the best answer is necessarily, because still an hour lying there restfully, you know, that that's still useful. Mm. Um, but only if probably for me, only if my mind is going to be restful, and it probably wasn't going to be because I'm in a race and I'm excited and um, I want to get back out there. So, so I did decide to sort of get up and get on with it. Um, I probably was lying there for an hour. I think I was lying there for an hour, hour and a half in total, but but probably only had 20, 20 maybe thirty minutes, um, and then yeah, got 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 back out there. So that was the second night. Uh, but but later that you know, on the third evening, I was 
clearly kind of slowing, I suppose. And you can feel, um, well, there was a funny moment where there was a, there's a concurrent race called the Spine Challenger North. And I had a friend in that race and I'd sort of gone past him and I was running, running ahead. And, and about an hour later, he sort of hiked past me as I was running um and and that was a good sign that maybe maybe i needed another sleep what does it i mean i I imagine it's incredibly hard to articulate but when you're in that kind of kind of gray area of sort of half sleeping half awake when you've been on your feet for that length of time i mean can you articulate what that is like like what that is like to kind of experience well i don't know if i can i mean i suppose it's a bit like being drunk where you're you know not absolutely plastered but like a bit drunk where you're you sort of think things and then you're not sure you're not so sure you don't almost don't trust yourself very much um and also if you are hallucinating which is reasonably common that's another element of sort of distrust where you kind of think did i see someone there or was it an inflatable shark um uh so you have this strange it is like a twilight kind of world and of course it's dark you may well be on your own for a long time yeah, I mean, the world gets sort of confusing and, and you're probably underfueled, almost definitely underfueled. So, yeah, it's this confusing sort of twilight world of feeling a bit drunk, um, not being that sure of things, being a bit forgetful. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I don't know. I, I keep wanting to use the word horrible. It's not it's not that bad, but it's not it's not super pleasant. It's not it's the opposite of kind of, you know chariots of fire dashing along the beach. You know, it's it's the opposite. It's the other end of that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you definitely don't feel like that. You have to grow kind of uh, accustomed to entering in that kind of headspace. Of is there is there like a counter narrative that runs through your head of like, okay, I may have seen something there that may have been a, an inflatable shark or you know a tree branch that maybe turned into a snake or whatever it the sort of imagery is. Like, is there a, yeah a sort of inner monologue of like, yeah, that's maybe there, maybe it's not, but this is all part of it. That you kind of, I suppose, is is, is the kind of. Uh, the, the lighthouse in the storm that's kind of keeping you going to kind of stop you from totally tipping over and sort of, I don't know, losing, losing the plot. I mean, experience really, really, really helps, um, as you might imagine. Uh, I mean, the first time I hallucinated was that first spine race. And because I'd never had hallucinations before, I sort of believed some of them. So, for example, there was I was adamant. I felt really sure that someone was setting off sort of red Chinese lanterns for me to follow and, and I followed them and I went wildly off course um, and, and you know, they hadn't existed. Whereas now if I saw them, I most like, you know, I, I feel fairly confident. I'd go hallucinating, how annoying. Um, and, and wouldn't I would just kind of think, right, I need to eat. I need some caffeine. Maybe I need to sleep. I think I'd be a lot more practical. I mean, what I, <laughs> I thought I was experienced anyway, when I did the Tour de Gion in, in the autumn, um, I had a new experience there, which was, yeah, the hallucinations that I was... They're, they're not especially sinister. They're just kind of a bit annoying, really. But I had this sort of permanent sense of deja vu that I got there, which was which was horrible. Um, this constant feeling of, oh, you, you're here again. You didn't like it last time. It was raining last time as well. Yeah, it's not really nice here, is it? And then, I, and then I was going, but when was I here? I haven't been here, have I? No, but it feels like you definitely have. I was having this conversation like for two days um, in my head and, and almost imagining maybe I can't make new memories now. I, I honestly thought that maybe I'm stuck in this, this sort of, this sort of loop. Um, so that was a slightly new element for me, uh, 
last last year and, and it was a bit unsettling and then after the race I asked a couple of other experienced runners you know they were like oh yeah that happens all the time so that was quite a relief so I think if I, yeah that happens again it won't trouble me nearly as much so yeah I think it probably is one experience thing mm. and you know when you get to those stages I mean the, the thing you need most of all is some sleep really um it's just it's not always readily available I suppose Mm, it's super interesting that and I love that like you say experience but I've got this image in my head of head of like a kind of ultra runners sort of uh sort of therapy group a survival group where you kind of share your collective experiences of the of the weird and the wonderful and the wild and the sort of trippy things like Chinese lanterns yeah 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 I've seen that yeah sort of the deja vu constant loop cycle yeah yeah that's that's kind of standard this sort of cumulative uh sort of collage of crazy imagery that the, the mind generates when you're putting it through extremes but i think as well what's what's lovely about the spine race and what's lovely about the kind of stories you've been sharing post the event is the is the kind of people that kind of helped you along the way at the various kind of checkpoints the people that you kind of clicked in with the people who were crewing for you because that's that's such a huge part of it as well as it being like an incredible kind of physical feat for you as an individual but the the people who crew and support are like so kind of vital to to achieving something like that oh yeah um it, the race is absolutely incredible i mean there's a phrase kind of the spine family which which has been uh mentioned quite a lot uh which i've been a, a bit reluctant to sort of join in with because it feels a bit a bit sort of um um i don't know i don't know what the word is but a little bit maybe too good to be true but 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 it really is like that um i mean firstly i mean there are some paid staff on the race but there's a over 100 uh, volunteers, I believe, um, and they're just just incredible. I mean, there were people. There were people. You know, for, for starters, I mean, removing someone's muddy shoes and socks is not a task anyone really volunteers for, even if they're a volunteer. Um, but I, you know, I had countless times people helping me take my shoes off um, when they were just disgusting, and my feet would have been even worse. Um, and and just you know, those small acts of kindness of bringing you a cup of tea, checking you're all right. Um, and then there's yeah very professional medical people on the race and and a safety team ready to sort of rescue people from the hill if if need be um and and aside from that as well the race i think just the madness of the race it does attract um sort of just just strangers possibly people who live you know on the route or near the route but not always i mean people come from quite far away actually and just just come and i don't know give you give you a sweet or a cup of tea or just cheer you on um you know kind of in the middle of nowhere or in the middle of the night and stuff and that's just it's just so heartwarming um mm. and just i mean i've used this phrase a few times before but i mean especially these last few years we've had so many divisive political um sort of debates and and, and things whether it's in social media or in, in referendums and stuff and you can feel quite yeah i mean britain does feel more you know to me more divided than ever um but actually when you when you put those things to the side, you know, most people are good people and they do little kind things. And it's, um, it's wonderful to feel that actually. Um, and just a reminder that, yeah, most people are good, I think. Yeah. That's a lovely sentiment to put out in the world. And those small acts of kindness really reverberate in a way that kind of can sometimes cut through all that other kind of discourse that might have more of a negative kind of slant like that. that like you say, the random stranger who gives you a jelly baby or whatever it is, like in that one moment has, such impact and 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 meaning it really does um yeah it's a tribute to to the kind of individuals who who come out and support um these kind of 
these kind of events. And we were we were talking about it earlier. The, these kind of events obviously traces through this kind of beautiful part of of the UK that is connected to this this history, this process that you touched on earlier. And that feels really kind of relevant at the moment, given given what's been happening down in in Dartmoor with the with the protests there, where the the sort of right to wild camp has been sort of withdrawn seemingly overnight and there's this sort of lots of kind of uh protests happening to kind of push back against that decision i mean are events like the spine race sort of is this like jeopardy to their kind of longevity of like more and more of these kind of things start to happen where like private landowners are coming and, and sort of reducing access do, do events like the spine race or whatever it is become harder to stage with stuff like this that seems to be coming happening more and more often I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Uh, I mean, because it's on a national trail, I, they would have to, um, you know, that's a government backed, a government backed initiative. And we've got, I think, 12 national trails in England and Wales. So I think it would be hard to kind of overturn their, you know, get them closed down or overturn them. Um, whether whether an individual landover could say, yeah, I don't want 100 people running through, running through my land. Um, I mean, the, the spine already has two or three little diversions in place. I don't know whether they're temporary or or permanent, um, but I think one or two of them are, you know, sensitive areas for various reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I'm probably not the, uh, I, I don't know enough about about land, land regulations and laws um, to know whether things like this are, are under threat. I, I suspect it'd be very difficult to, yeah, get, get the Pennine Way closed down, for example. Um, um yeah i'm not too concerned for now but although the the the, the whole dartmoor thing was um yeah pretty pretty upsetting uh, and but also it seemed to really galvanize galvanize people hopefully and and yeah sometimes we do have to stand up and fight for for our freedoms um yeah in a in a very active way or or they'll get taken away yeah absolutely and yeah i appreciate that it's quite quite an expansive question to to give you sort of yeah to have a knowledge of uh, of the land registry it's just curious like that seems to you're right though it seems to have really um really kind of inspired people and the the, the sort of protests that they had that following the decision were, were quite encouraging to see but you also mentioned there like some of the areas are um that the race goes through are, are they sensitive as well in terms of a kind of conservation point of view because i know that's such a, a an important part of of the stuff that you put out there with your most recent book as well which is kind of really geared towards um running's impact on the in the environment and things that we can kind of be more and more mindful of like are, are you mindful when you are taking part in races about the kind of the climate implications for them as well the fascinating thing with the Penang Way is is um, a lot of it goes on on peat bogs and and peat bogs are um, even more effective than than trees at, at um, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Um, that said, the Penang Way so so in a way like running on peat bogs is not great, um, but that said, the Penang Way is actually a huge success story of of peat restoration, mm-hmm. and a lot of the peat bogs I've, I've spoken to a um, I should name check Jess who's a who's a doing a PhD in I forget the exact title, but it's a lot to do with peat bogs. And she tells me, yeah, a lot of the Penang Way peat isn't isn't pristine peat necessarily. So it's not, we're not, you know, we're not damaging pristine peat. A lot of that is actually in Scotland in quite wild areas. So that that's reassuring. Mm. Um, and yeah, the race does, it does send you an impact report. And really, the in a nutshell, it's kind of, yes, yeah, stick to the path as much as possible. Um, cause obviously when you go off the path a little bit, you're, you, you may be adding to the erosion. Um, I mean, 
I, but uh, you know, we're in a race, and I've got to be honest, I'm not. Um, yeah, sometimes the, the the flagstones are icy or completely covered in water, and and you know, you might, you don't always, <laughs> you might put your foot off to the side. I can't promise I've never done that, but you know, overall, um, yeah, the Penang Way is 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 a good, and also, I mean, it's taking people up up there and looking at looking at the landscapes they might not get up there otherwise, which you know. A bit, a bit like the sort of zoo concept in a way like you know it's a bit unfair on an animal putting them in a cage but if it if that leads to some you know young environmentalists um who, who go out into the world and, and and care about animals then then it's um worthwhile but then also around events i mean how you travel to and, for, and from an event is um i don't know if that's a bigger factor or not but it well it could be i mean if if you got an event where hundreds of people are flying to it like the big city marathons, then actually, you know, that's far, far more impactful. There are only sort of 500 people doing the spine races, you know, 30 or 40,000 people are doing the, you know, New York, Berlin, London marathons. And and there, yeah, um, as I looked into in my book, that can be absolutely epic footprint. You know, the more people that are flying, um, the, you know, the, the spine race wouldn't, wouldn't be anywhere close to uh, any of those sorts mm. of events are there i mean are there actionable things that that runners can be can be sort of mindful of with their own kind of running to sort of lessen their own personal impact as well like i mean it's it's hard isn't it because the, the the major marathons they're such a big draw and i think a lot of pe- people will get a lot of value and uh, motivation and inspiration out of them but i mean at a personal level are there yeah are there actionable things that one can do as a as an individual to help their their footprint Oh, definitely. Um, I'd almost split. I mean, these things overlap, but I'd almost split it into two categories. There, there's your individual footprint, and then there's systemic change or, or sort of nudging the system. Um, and actually, nudging the system, uh, whether that's the running system or, or the global or national political system, to me, that's far more impactful and far more worth your time. If you've just got five minutes to spare in your week, I would email your MP, um, ask, you know, ask. Why are why is is fossil fuels why are fossil fuels still heavily subsidised? Why why is gas you know new nice licences for gas and oil uh, drilling in the North Sea being being given out? Um, th- those are the big uh, the big stories. Th- those are the big disturbing patterns. That's what's scary. Um, I would say concentrate on that. To be honest, uh, in terms of a runner's personal footprint. Uh, yeah, also, you know, join in protests. There's a big one, Extinction Rebellion are, are arranging a big one on 21st of April in London. Um, you know, please come along. It's a lovely, welcoming group of people, very sort of infectious vibe, very welcoming. Um, and, you you know, and, and actually joining in a protest is, is actually fairly non-committal, actually. I mean, you can you can sort of join in for half an hour or an hour and, and just tiptoe off and no one no one really notices, but but they'll notice a big crowd at the beginning or whatever. Um but yeah, to me, those are the more impactful things to do. If you're interested in your own personal footprint, which which I have been too, it's three things really for a runner. It's 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 how you travel um, to and from races or maybe your training. Um, so the travel um, and obviously their flights are far more impactful than um, than the other end of the spectrum. Well, <laughs> the best thing to do is run to a race, but that's not always not always uh, practical. Um, it, but a train journey will be a lot a lot better than a flight. And it, the second thing is your your kit really. Um, Obviously, most of our kit lasts quite well, actually, because it's all made of oil. <laughs> um, but 
shoes you know we go through a lot of shoes and and companies especially tell us you know after 300 miles we should chuck them out because they might injure us which is you know a a massive myth and of course they want us to buy another pair don't they so and all those shoes aren't getting recycled and they're all made of oil um so yeah i I suppose buying less kit trying to make it last longer uh is is a really important thing and then the third thing it's probably less significant, but it'd be your diet. For a non-runner, a diet would be a quarter, your diet would be a quarter of your your footprint. For a runner, it's it's more complicated, isn't it? Because you you're going to have three square meals in a day. How much of the, how many of those calories contribute to your running? Um, you know, it's probably only a fraction. Um, but you know, cutting down on beef, beef is just horrendous for the planet, um, and lamb's the second worst. And, and obviously, meat and dairy overall is just pretty disastrous. Um, and when I when I saw the research. Um, done by oxford university there's a four-year study um i mean i pretty much kind of turned turned vegan when i saw the results of that it's um it's it's kind of staggering how how bad um especially beef is for for the planet what were the statistics that really kind of like hammered the home hammered home the message for you that made you sort of change your diet um there's just a graph so there's a website called ourworldindata.org it's oxford university and they they put the study uh this four-year study um on there um off the top of my head well yeah your footprint your footprint from food would be reduced by 74 percent if you cut out meat and dairy um and and yeah that hierarchy is um yeah beef being it's beef is like three times worse than anything else in terms of the emissions it costs to create um to create yeah a beef steak um and then lamb's the next worst and lamb's pretty bad and then and then it's sort of all, all the rest. Um, cheese is pretty bad. Loads of water. You need so much water for the sort of the cheese and the milk. Um, and and lo- lots of emissions happen there as well. Um, I mean, yeah, there's more, a lot more detail in my book. Off the top of my head, I can't remember much more than that. But there's, yeah, there's an easy to find. If you went to ourworldanddata.org and just Googled sort of, uh, sorry, not Googled, but searched, um, I think it would probably be like food emissions or something. You would see the, you'd see the research and the graph on there. And it's quite, quite staggering. But yeah, no, no one's expecting everyone to turn vegan because you know that's a bit extreme for some people. But just cutting down, cutting down, um, especially beef. But yeah, cutting down on meat and dairy. Um, so that would be the third, the third. Yeah, the, those three. So your travel, your kit, and your diet. Really, uh, probably in that in that order um, for an individual footprint. But um, it is it is BP who invented the idea of a individual footprint. Um, so they love the idea that we're all sort of scrutinizing ourselves and um, mm. and and obsessing over our own footprint so that they don't get looked at so much. So, you know, governments and big corporations like them, and, and we're talking on a day where a lot of these companies have, have announced record, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar profits. Um, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it makes me incredibly angry. Um, yeah. You know they're 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 making billions from from you know ruining the planet for for our our children, and and the, the politicians aren't aren't standing up to it. So it's um yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was in Oxford Street yesterday, where where the teachers were were marching down, and like you said, that there, there's protests, that collective en masse thing of people just some people were holding signs some people were just walking and like you say i'm sure some people were only going to be there for 10 minutes and then maybe they would have peeled off and gone back to their day but that collective on mass thing is 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 effective in terms of communicating a, a message and it is it's uh 
it's staggering and it's the narrative like you say it's how it's framed the the millions that are spent on marketing to come up with these concepts of personal carbon footprint that diminishes responsibility from the main stakeholders who are chiefly responsible it's like that bag for life thing of like okay well if you get your bag for life you're doing your bit for the environment it's like okay great yes there is valid logic in that but for real yeah. systemic change, it has to come from the stakeholders. Hey, if people have been on the whole chat GPT thing recently, why don't you put that to good work? Maybe don't cheat on your essays, but use that to sort of auto-generate lots of uh, emails to send to your MP. You can just keep sort of firing them off. And, you know, that's that's one thing to uh, to put chat GPT to, uh, to good use. So, yeah, it's... Sorry to go off on a slightly political... No, no, that's brilliant. No, I to- totally agree. Um, I tell you, I mean, I do... I mean, I'm one of those people, will I sit down, you know, will I sit down and write a proper letter to my MP? Um, It's been a while since I've done that. But will I send? can I send them an email that just takes me not even a minute? I mean, yeah, that that's, that's really, I I do that regularly. That's really easy. And actually, I'd recommend people if you sign up for Greenpeace UK, um, Mm -hmm. just go on the website and give them your email address, then they they email you. uh, If there's a debate in the House of Lords or Commons, they'll email you that day and say, "Hey, email your MP today." You know, and you just put in your postcode. You can, you can copy and paste. Ideally, you you know, you add a sentence or two that that's genuine from you. But you know, we we can be doing that quite easily, actually. Yeah, um, via via Greenpeace UK and and probably a load of other organisations as well. Um, And yeah, people who know more than me believe writing to MP still still counts for something and still matters. Um, yeah. But certainly people like Just Stop Oil, who I'm a big fan of, you know, they they, they think it's too late for that sort of um, almost diplomacy that, that you've got to get out in the streets and do civil disobedience or, you know, it's just too late. That's the only thing that's going to gonna make a difference. And, and I think they genuinely are making a difference. Um, Insulate yeah. Britain, Extinction Rebellion. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge huge admirer of, of their work well this i mean this could this could eat up the, the all of this this conversation and it's a it's a whole of the whole of the podcast series but i'm grateful for your perspectives <laughs> on it and i think i would definitely steer people towards your book if they want to kind of dive deeper into the research and the work that you did and how they can maybe implement small changes to help shift the the needle in in the right direction i think what else helps shift that needle is when things kind of uh, get covered in the press and what really kind of um, caught my eye recently and I don't know whether you saw this was um, Innes Fitzgerald refusing to represent Team GB over at the uh, cross-country championships over in Australia because of the carbon footprint associated with the flight required to travel there is is, is stuff like that it give you kind of encouragement for the for the younger generation coming through that that will be or maybe sort of elite level athletes that they're going to be in a position to to really kind of make protests that really cause kind of ripple effects within the sort of sporting community. Yeah, I, I was really, um, I sent her, I don't know her, but I've sent her a message uh, and she has responded. Um, I was really inspired by her decision. Um, in a way, it's younger people who I can see why they're more energised because, of course, the generations above them, myself included, you know, aren't going to be around for so long and we're not going to feel the effects as much as them. So I can see how, you know, and, and say Just Stop Oil, um you know, as far as I can tell, that you know they're mostly students, or or at least the sort of the sort of you know the the, the formation of the group is yeah, there's a lot of students, um, which I understand. Um, but at the same, on the same, uh, on the same way, it, it's it's that much more impressive when it's someone young. So I've got a um, I, I was in the GB team, the trail running team with um, Andy Simmons, who 
who it made uh, the same decision this year. He decided not to compete at the Trail World Championships in Thailand um, because of, yeah, because it would need a flight and it wasn't worth it uh, to him. Um, now, he's already had several GB vests. He's he's a similar age to me. Um, so in a way, I think it's, I'm not going to say that's an easy decision, but for someone to do it right at the beginning of their career, when you know, that's going to affect their reputation and, and may affect their selection next time around was, yeah, especially brave um, from her. So, yeah, really, really impressed and inspired. And, and it, it feels like a few people are doing that and that might become, um, you know, fairly normal. And, and it does fascinate me, the different sports and how they're how they're coping, because, I mean, I'm quite a big football fan and um, I don't know if you are, but there was a there was a quite upsetting thing a few weeks ago it was before the world cup actually which itself was a <laughs> bit of an environmental <laughs> disaster um but there was um some paris saint germain their star player and their manager were asked like should they be flying because a lot of these teams fly to um yeah just short journeys um within within a country um and i can see from an athletic point of view you know you don't want the players getting tired and stuff um but some of these journeys are just so short and the emissions just doesn't really seem justified um but yeah a star player was asked kind of um would you consider flying less to, to games and he, he just laughed it away he just thought it was a, a stupid question um and that was actually quite upsetting that a millionaire you know wasn't even couldn't even consider that mm. um i mean maybe that comes down to education um but yeah football is, is certainly a sport when when i was feeling bad about running i looked at other sports um and actually thought actually running's <laughs> running's doing pretty well compared to a lot of sports um and it is quite interesting to see um yeah i mean mostly it'll be spectator travel uh is going to be the biggest aspect of some sports so even though in football the teams are flying it's probably whether whether lots of fans fly so in european competition um then then yeah that can be quite bad if you've got a lot of people flying from i don't know london to I was going to say Moscow, but not at the moment. Um, but but you know, far eastern Europe or, or or something, then that's where there's going to be a huge footprint from an event. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sport itself really needs to to wake up. Some some sports are really behind. I didn't. Um, no, I'm not as as au fait with uh, with with football. My uh, my passion for football stopped around the age of 13. I'm an Everton supporter, but as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, Neville Southall is is still actually in goal for Everton, not being the sort of progressive liberal hero that he is at the moment on yeah, yeah. On, on social media, an absolute legend. But um, yeah, it is. I love that sentiment though of actually when you look within our within our sport that we love and can sort of compare it hold that mirror up to other sports that actually there is there is things to be hopeful about within within running i mean are, are there other things that you kind of take kind of comfort from like within the wider sense within the running community that make you think okay there is there is still some some hope for us as a, as a community in terms of our sort of impact on the environment yes and this is this is where i got to with my book actually um was i got very very gloomy especially around the sports where sportswear kind of chapters um and all the greenwashing and I felt really depressed and 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 also this this role that you know I'd as a you know I am still a sponsored athlete um I'm a lot more careful with how I sort of my behavior as a sponsored athlete now but where was I going with that but yeah I was getting I was getting quite depressed about about all of that um but then actually by the end of the book I was kind of thinking well where is there is there some good in running are there some some brands and some people and some events doing the right thing or at least trying to do the right thing and and part of the part of what holds us back actually is this fear of perfection i must get everything right before i start 
and and I see this a lot. And I just really encourage people not to worry too much about not getting it perfectly right because none of us can be perfect. You know, we're always going to release some emissions, whatever we do. It comes from our food, our clothes, you know, turning on a light switch. We can all progress, though. So, you know, progress, not perfection. And I would encourage, you know, people to, yeah, don't be afraid of being perfect. And, and then it will just become normal that people are doing their best and it's not perfect. And that that's that's OK. I've forgotten exactly. I've gone on a bit of a tangent. I've forgotten exactly where I was going. But, yeah, running, I did, by the end, I felt like running... And especially the sort of trail ultra fell running was actually leading quite a bit. And 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 this is coming from some experts in the industry as well. That Like I spoke to people close to the London Marathon. They were saying, well, if we're not sure, we look at ultra running and look at what they're doing. Um, just, you know, a tiny example is, for example, we're used to being more self-sufficient of carrying our own liquid, for example. Whereas at the London Marathon, it's quite problematic about runners aren't expected to carry their own water. Are they They're expected to be able to pick up a plastic cup of water and and or bottle of water and and then yeah and then throw it away uh, a few meters later um so that was in it, you know and, and and in the brands as well you can see some of the outdoors brands they know their customers love the outdoors and they're going to be a bit more uh, a bit ahead of the curve maybe in terms of caring for the environment so they've got to act accordingly and they've got to show they're doing their bit um so i actually ended the book with full of well, not full of, but but with lots of encouragement and and some people doing some really inspiring things. So yeah, there's some hope. Yeah, and that, and it has to you have to put that out in the universe, otherwise, oh, what's the what's the point of you know talking about it, being active about it, and encouraging people to sort of uh, sh- shift the needle in their own small ways? We have to sort of pump out that positive energy, and I love that sentiment of. Uh, the road race is looking to the the ultra trail mountain running community for for inspiration and ways of shaping and shifting what they're doing in order to sort of have more of a a positive change it'll be interesting to see like you know considering the the boston marathon recently sort of changing their entry uh, or deferral procedure for for women who are for pregnant seeing that sort of change happen and them sort of following suit with other major marathons who also offered a, a similar um thing it's it's encouraging to see that these kind of big institutions, well, they're not institutions, but big organizations that put on these races are receptive. So I suppose the message is that if there are things you, you would like to see changed, be, be vocal about them and people are responding and, and listening and, and taking action. We do have autonomy. We do have uh, power and we, we should use it. And uh, before we get too political, I feel like I'm about to pick up a banner right now and, and come <laughs> join you on, on a march, Damien. That feels like a, a, a really a really lovely note to, to end this conversation. I will be putting links to all of your books um, in the show notes for people who want to sort of dive deeper into the stuff we kind of touched on today. But just to wrap things up, what's next for you race-wise? Have you, have you considered racing or, or, or further kind of events? Or are you just enjoying a well-earned break right now yeah. um yeah without wanting to backtrack too much i just yeah just fully endorse what you just said there that that actually you, you know, the idea of activism is quite intimidating that word is quite intimidating to people and i can see how that that people might not consider themselves an activist but but just just giving a bit of feedback to a race or a brand you know it could be politely in an email is actually really worthwhile because these brands have told me several of them told me you know they're not going to they're not going to make changes unless they feel that the customers want them um and i think a lot of us might complain out loud or to our friends but don't necessarily and i could get better at this too um don't necessarily tell the brand or tell the event 
Um, you know, and, and a simple thing I'm trying to get in the habit of is, you know, if a race doesn't give any directions on the website about how to get there using public transport, for example, you know, just ask them, you know, can I get to this race on public transport? Is Could someone pick me up? Is it is it easily done? Are the times compatible? Um, so I think we can all really play an important role there. Um, and yeah, uh, back to running happier, happier, easy subjects. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, I've got, I've just been confirmed um, a place at Tour de Gion in September, which I did last year, which I absolutely loved in, in the Italian Alps. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I've got a place at UTS Ultra Trail Snowdonia in May. Um, I'm not sure what distance I'll do yet there. Um, so those are two big ones I've got in the calendar. Um, if I'm honest, I've got two or three, maybe even four or five other things I want to try and fit into the year. And I'm really struggling to sort of decide which ones to do and when and when to fit them in. So I'm still... I'm still deciding really on, on what else will be in my year, but um, yeah, you got to remember sometimes just happy to be not be injured and, and healthy and be able to afford, you know, to do all of this. So yeah, feeling very lucky at the moment. No, an exciting and by the sounds of it, jam packed year ahead. Well, all, all the best with your future adventures and races. I look forward to, to sort of tracking your performances uh, throughout the year, but yes, Damien, thank you so much for, for coming on sharing your perspective and being such a, a fantastic guest on the big room thank you so much danny take care big thank you to damien for coming on the podcast you can read his new book we can't run away from this via the links in today's show notes and not long after this was recorded, Damien went on to compete in the Barclay Marathon as well. So be sure to head over to his blog where you can read how that adventure went. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for The Big Run.